0: I'd like to welcome you to the ministry of McCormick's Creek Church. We certainly hope that you will enjoy this selection. Perilous times. And we've been in the book of Revelations for the last few weeks. Um, and of course, uh, all prophecy within the scripture ties into, at some point, into the book of Revelation. And so we are we are going to read this morning out of Matthew 24. Matthew 24, verses 36 through 46, as they're taking it up, I want to remind everybody that it's 6 o'clock uh, this evening, we're having the uh, the Sunday school uh, play, and I'm sure everybody's looking forward to that, and as well as just a reminder that Wednesday and Sunday, just regular services as before, okay? And then, of course, the Wednesday after this is Christmas, so there'll be no service, but we are... I'm going to have regular service on on Sunday, uh, this Wednesday and this Sunday. Okay, Matthew 24, verse 36 through 46. But at that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah Entered into the ark. You know, they, I know I've said this before, but every time I see Noah in the Greek, you know, we that's actually pronounced Noe. And my grandpa used to say Noah all the time, and I thought he was just a hillbilly and he didn't know how to say Noah. And so he had, had it right, and I didn't have it right. So, so I learned something. It took me a long time to get that all figured out. All right. <laughs> and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Then shall two be in the field, and the one shall be taken, and the other left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill, the one shall be taken, and the other left. Watch therefore, for you know not what hour your Lord doth come. But know this, that if the good man of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, he would have, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. Therefore, be you also ready for in such an hour as you think not the Son of Man cometh. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his Lord had made ruler over his household to give them meat in due season. Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. Turn and shake someone's hand and tell them I'm glad that you made it this morning. <laughs> i uh you may be seated, I apologize i uh, about the ice out on the parking lot. I should have thought yesterday everything was slushy, and I should have had the guy come and get that ice out now it 's a little bit it 's not going to really warm up today, so we 're not going to be able to get that out uh because of a snow plow will just right over top the ice so uh, I apologize, just be careful if you if you're uh, uh, you're a little older and you want to, and you come this evening if you want to park by the front uh i 'm just going ernie if you can be here early enough if some of the older people would want to pull right to the front and get out, then we could let one of the ushers park your car okay so so that would that would help and i don 't want anybody falling out there and again, that was uh my fault in not thinking about it i uh, every year this happens i say i want to get a snow plow so I can do it myself. Just uh, that way things could be done when I needed them done. Isn't that that the way men think? You go, you know, you go buy, you go buy. It's like a person who decides to go hunting so he can save money on meat. So he goes and buys a $20,000 truck, $1,500 gun, uh, $900 worth of, of hunting clothes. Then he has to pay for a lease. So you figure how much a pound of meat would cost after all that? It would be pretty expensive, wouldn't it? I suppose people in every generation think that their times are unique, and we do. Uh, You know, I believe and I'm convinced, and no one will tell me otherwise, that we're not really at the end of the end times. But I suppose if you go back through generations, you will see other people thinking that they are living in those same unique times. And, you know, important biblical prophecies are being fulfilled in, in, in their lifetime. So what we tend to do is we tend to overlay the news with Bible prophecy. Contemporary events tend to shape our belief in prophecy, or if you want to use the term eschatology, uh, that's what the study of, of prophecy is. During the optimistic times of the Industrial Revolution, people believed in a post-millennial rapture, which meant after the millennial reign, then the Lord would take his church because everything was going good and no one wanted the rapture to take place. And that, that did happen. Then, then, uh, then the, the destruction of two world wars caused everybody to believe in pre-millennial rapture because things weren't going so well. So we're not alone in thinking our age is, is, is unusual time on planet Earth. And observant thinking people, uh, they, they know something is going on. You can compile a long list of re- remarkable innovations and upheavals that characterize our age. There's a lot of them. There's been, many, there, there's been many physical changes in the world, increases in tornadoes and hurricanes and earthquakes and tsunamis. And the enormous advances in technology have brought many innovations in warfare, drones, nuclear weapons, heat-seeking missiles. The medical field is constantly making breakthroughs in cloning and organ transplants and genome mapping, miracle drugs and artificial body parts. Computer-related technology has brought us to the Internet. The satellite, space travel, and personal networking has ushered an age of information overload. And I agree with the information overload. You can get it too quickly. It's nice to some degree, but you can get some information and, and, and you can begin to believe a certain thing is going on when in reality it's not happening at all. Because so many people were so so able to grab information so quickly and someone can make something up and it can, can fool a lot of people. So it is it has it's been an overload. It's, our world has become smaller. You know, with the look with the with the ability to communicate with advances and in, in easy travel. The world's population at this time is actually bursting at the scene. World religious trends are also changing. We are living in a religious world today where you have a smorgasbord of beliefs. So a person can sit down and they can grab a belief out of this denomination or this particular religion and they can you know they can incorporate it into their own. So you've got a, 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 a smattering, if you would, of all kinds of different beliefs based on different religions that people have. And if you don't believe me, you talk to a few people. You see that some of the things that they pick up, and, and people who, again, we talk about the information, people who sit in front of televisions all the time and, and uh, listen to different religious beliefs, and they get so mixed up, it's a miracle that you can get them out of it. So, you know, this is happening. This is what we're dealing with today. And even, even though, if you begin to look at this, even the secular humanist believes that something colossal is about to happen. They believe that. They know that something is about to take place. So that's just where we live right now. And what we're trying to, I'm going to try to teach uh, here this morning, I hope will help us to, to kind of look at what some of the ancient prophets were believing and how all of this worked. Since before the day of Pentecost, believers have been curious about the timing of the fulfillment of specific prophecies. Now, when Jesus told his disciples of the impending fulfillment of the promise of the Father, which was, of course, baptism with the Holy Spirit, they thought this might signal the culmination of the Hebrew prophecies about the restoration of Israel. And this is what they asked him. They said, Lord, will thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? In Acts 1.6, Jesus' answer had a double significance. First, it was an implicit acknowledgement of the fact that there was going to be a restoration of the kingdom of Israel one day. Second, it was the denial of the possibility for any person to know when this would occur. He said, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in His own power in Acts seven, Now the statement, It is not for you to know, has always been a challenge to all of us. Now why would it be a challenge? Because all of us want to know. And this is what this is what brings in so many uh, different belief systems, people uh, mining, if you would, the 24th chapter of the book of Matthew, going into the book of Revelation, uh, talking and studying in the book of Daniel, and trying to come up with a time when the Lord's coming. And, and you all know, you've heard me say, and, and I believe that something will occur, but I am not so naive as to say that the coming of the Lord's going to occur in 2018. I just believe something uh, massive is going. To happen because it's the end of a generation. And I as that started seeing the blooming of the fig tree in 1948. 70 years later, 2018, something is going to occur. I would like to think it was the coming of the Lord, but it could be the beginning of the the seven years of tribulation. It could be a lot of other things. You know, the the Lord could come at any second. And that's the key because we are living in the last days and we have been in the last days for 2,000 years. We have been there for 2,000 years. So it's again, it's a challenge. We want to know. We want to know. We want to know when Jesus will return. We want to know when the great tribulation will begin. We want to know when the world will end. But Jesus was unmovable on this in a discussion of the end time events. He said, "But of the day and the hour knoweth no man. Know not the angels which are in heaven, neither the son, but the father." In Mark thirteen thirty two. Now, some have speculated it is merely uh, the precise day or the exact hour that we cannot know, but that we can narrow the time of the end down to a matter of days, weeks, months, perhaps to the year. So many attempts have been made to do this over the past two millennia. This have been no need to reiterate them, and in, in, in this, but have failed. Uh, they, they have failed. But the Greek words, and this is this is this is a key. The Greek words. Humera, translated day, and Hora, that is rendered hour, have a range of meaning that cautions us against attempts to circumvent, in any way, Jesus' point that the time of the end cannot be known by people. Although these words can point to precise times, those two words can be precise. The key in this particular instance is is the same key that we've done throughout all of this study on Sunday morning for the last few weeks. It is the way and in the context that these words are used. Yes, they can mean a precise day. They can mean a precise minute or hour. But they can also mean an era which is a lot larger than a day or the hour. So it's in the context in which they're used. They can also be used simply, again, to point out that no one knows the era of fulfillment. So both words can simply mean time with no reference to a specific time frame. Because of Jesus' words to his disciples in Acts 1-7, that is apparently his meaning here. In the mystery of the incarnation... Even Jesus confessed he did not know the time of the end. Now, for those Bible scholars that are out there, how in the world can God incarnate not know the time that he set? Go ahead. Yeah, of course, Jesus said only the Father only, not even the Son. Okay. I know, we know, yeah. Good. Do you have your hand up, Charles? Okay. That's right. That's exactly right. It just proves his humanity. And, you know, we, we need to understand that and know that. We need, to, we need to be certain of his humanity as well as the fact that he is God incarnate. Because if we're not certain of his humanity, then he didn't suffer like we suffer. And I need to know that. You need to know that. We need to know that he felt the same things that we feel. And that, that's, that's vital. And this is really what he's proving here. So, you know, the, he, he, when God added human existence to his, his previously unmitigated deity, he willingly embraced the limitations of that existence. Uh, and, and, you know, that, that's, that's something that, uh, that, that again, it, it makes me feel good about what God did for me. And this includes boundaries to the knowledge of the Son of God. This is beyond our comprehension, really, uh, for us to be able to, to focus on this and understand this I would say this is beyond our comprehension you know we're not really going to be able to understand it completely uh, so we just we accept uh, that as a miraculous consequence of the manifest manifestation of God in the flesh It has sometimes been said that while we cannot know the date of the end time events we can know the times and the seasons and you know I have made that statement I believe we can know the seasons now when I say that, and again, we have to look at how Robertson uses it in context, okay that i uh, the season is again two thousand years long and actually began on the day of Pentecost, as far as i 'm concerned, so that is when the season began, and I, as we get in this you you'll understand what i 'm saying so so let's let 's kind of look at this it's, uh, This is uh, precisely what Jesus said cannot be known when we talk about seasons in the term of uh, how we understand a season, such as a few months of, of fall, a few months of, of, of winter, or summer, or spring, this kind of thing. We think of seasons that way. God doesn't see that in, in that in that sense. Paul made this statement in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 and 2. He said, but of the times and the seasons, brethren, now look how he says this, you have no need that I write unto you. He said, you don't need to understand this so much. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. Now what was he saying here? He was saying, in this sense, he was saying that he, you don't need to understand this, but Paul believed that the the Lord was going to come in his lifetime. And I can prove that biblically. He thought Jesus was going to come in his lifetime. So when he talks to them, he says, In the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you for yourselves. Know perfectly that he's going to come as a thief in the night. But a thief in the night can come at any time. At any time. So since some of Jesus' last words served to inform his disciples that only the Father knows the when of prophecy's fulfillment, this awareness was deeply rooted in the minds of first century believers, so deeply rooted that there was no need to discuss the matter. And Paul thought it was possible that the rapture again could occur during his lifetime because he wrote this, Then we, which are alive and remain, at 1 Thessalonians 4.17, we which alive and remain. In every generation, this is the way believers have spoken, and rightly so. We should live in expectation every day of the coming of Jesus Christ. And the church needs to go back to that. You need to hear that more and more. You need never get bored with someone preaching the coming of Jesus Christ. Never get bored with that. You know, we cannot set a date for the rapture or the second coming... Uh, can we know for sure we are, we're living in the last days? That's the question. Can we know for sure that we're living in the last days? Now, we can, we can and for the, for the last days began again with the birth of the church, and this era is characterized by events and attitudes used in Scripture to describe the last days. To explain the events of the day of Pentecost, Peter stood with the other eleven apostles, and he said, "This we're very familiar with this Acts two fourteen through seventeen, but we're going to read it anyway. Ye men of Judea and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words, for these are not drunken as you suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was. Look down. I want you to get this. This is that. That's key right there. This is that." Which is spoken by the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit. So when he poured out his spirit, that began the last days. That's what this is saying. Upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. So old men, shall, Brother Fox has been having dreams for a long time. He's one of the old men. And me I still see visions. <laughs> he agrees with me. He's not close enough to throw anything at me, so I got him while he was way back there. <laughs> Peter continued his quote from Joel through Joel 2:32 illustrating the remarkable connections between Joel's prophecy and the events of Pentecost. For our purposes in this lesson it's important to notice that what Joel described as something that would occur, now look at this, afterward. This is what Joel said, afterward. Peter described as happening in the last days. So this is an inspired interpretation of the chronological location of Pentecost on God's calendar. This is where it is. This is what began the last days. On the day of Pentecost, they started. Now, since Pentecost, we have been living in the last days, but we do not know which day will be the last day. So, we are, if we understand seasons as hundreds or even thousands of years, we are in the season, but we've been in that season for some time. You know, it's, it, I'm not sure that people in our minds is kind of understanding completely the incarnation. But I'm not sure that we can really grasp time the way God grasped time. You know, when I talk of a thousand years, you know, we, we, we talk in decades. You know, we talk in 20 years, 30 years, 100 years is even beyond us. But yet when you look at God in eternity, we're talking about thousands of years. And it's difficult for us to understand. We want Jesus to come right now, and I do, and you, we all should. We want it to happen, but he has got a plan, and in that plan, that, that may include hundreds or thousands of years. Things are going to occur that we still don't quite grasp. Have you ever noticed? Now, just think of some of you who have been in church for any length of time. When you go back even 20 years, 30 years, if you've been in church for any length of time, there was questions in your minds of how the book of Revelation in one area would be, uh, could be fulfilled because you couldn't see how it could be with the technology and the advancements that we have today we can understand the mark of the beast we couldn't really understand it back 30, 40 years ago it could not be understood but now we see that now what else is there that still can be opened and it lets us know that we're closer to the last day that helps us to to grasp that point now <sighs> James' letter to the 12 tribes. This is an interesting uh, little historical thing here. James' letter to the 12 tribes scattered abroad may be the earliest New Testament book that was written. Josephus says James died in A.D. 62. The letter shows no awareness of the Jewish-Gentile crisis of A.D. 49 and 50, which had been the rise of the Maccabees, which is, again, the subject of Acts 15 and which was resolved largely with James' influence. So it seems reasonable to think that his letter was written before that crisis actually began. The church structure mentioned in the book, where it says James 3.1, teachers and elders in James 5.14-15, through 15, they, su- they suggest an early date as does the reference to the synagogue as a place of worship in James two. 2. Now, the Greek, synagogue is translated assembly. This and other evidence suggests that James wrote this letter no later than A.D. 48. Now, why did you say all that? You're questioning, get me all confused. Because the significance of this is that James is one of the New Testament writers who used the phrase last days. And he did this in a rebuke to the rich who trusted in their wealth while abusing their workers. And he wrote this in James 5, 1 through 3. Go to now, ye rich men, weep, howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered. The rest of them shall be a witness against you, and shall eat your flesh as it were. You have heaped treasure together for the last days. Now the last sentence in this quote can be understood in a variety of ways. But what is certain is that James was aware of the concept of last days. And his warning strikes at the heart of a problem, pervasive in many nations of today's world. Greed, materialism, and trust in prosperity rather than trust in God. This has even crept into some corners of professing Christendom under the guise of prosperity gospel. A problem mentioned in lesson 12. We talked about that, and I remember we, were, we got into that. To determine that the last days are in full swing, we need not poke about in some kind of musty corner of ancient caves or some kind of hidden uh, book of Isaiah or Dead Sea Scrolls. We don't need to look for that kind of thing. Because, you know, it, it's not necessary. Even where economic reversal is experienced, because you look at the world and what people are doing, materialism, and even again... Even again, if something changes in our economy right now, people believe. Especially your, your wealthier, your people who you're humanist, they believe that everything can turn around and be like it once was, and it could be. I'm not saying that it can't be, but the thing is, everybody they all place everything on the fact that their wealth is going to take them somehow to heaven. It's going to make their life better. But one thing you find out, when a man has made every dime that he can possibly make, when a man is completely as wealthy as he ever will need to be in his family for as many generations as he could possibly see, he still is looking for something else. The one thing that is, the one certainty that you'll find, no matter how much material gain you have, you never have enough. That's a person who puts their, and another thing that we need to understand, this book of James, which is the oldest book, or they think is the oldest book in the New Testament, the one thing that he made very, very clear was that we should not oppress the poor. That's one thing that he said. And we've got to understand that we are just a small portion of the world, and in most of our third world countries out there, that there's a lot of problems with the poor being oppressed. So it should be a concern for us, a concern for the church. Because if they're addressed in the first letter to the apostolic believers that we shouldn't oppress the poor, then obviously it's something in the heart of God. And it's something we need to always keep in mind. The book of Hebrews begins with a reference to the last days in hebrews 1 1 and 2 god who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son now i want you to pay a close attention to this what i'm reading to I'll read it again god who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in his last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world. So through Jesus Christ the world was created, because he is God incarnate. He was writing this to the Hebrews. First century Jewish readers would have understood that the reference to the last days to mean the final days. They would have understood that. And if Paul, which I believe is a writer of Hebrews, did in fact write it, this is what he was saying. Now, if God has spoken by his Son in these final days, it means there is no further or more advanced revelation to come. That is one thing that you can knock down anybody who's got a new revelation because of that particular passage of Scripture. There's no new revelation because this was the final days. And he wrote this the way the Hebrews would understand it, that through Jesus Christ, everything is fulfilled. That's what he was saying. God saved his ultimate revelation for that given through and by Jesus Christ. Now, for our purposes in this lesson, we should note that although the last days had just begun had just begun in this case, many believers were already being tempted to compromise their faith. This is what he was writing to, letting them know. You folks, you've got it all, is what he was telling them. He said, there's no new revelation, because obviously somebody was trying to pull them back into Judaism. Trying to give them something, uh, maybe more than what they had before, trying to pull them in with new revelation." Because the Jewish recipients of the book of Hebrews were tempted to turn away from their exclusive faith in the Lord's return. They were doing this, and they wanted to they you know they were trying to go back. they were trying to be people were trying to pull them back to Judaism. And you can see this in Hebrews ten nineteen. The content of the book shows that although they had been persecuted for their faith in Christ in Hebrews ten thirty-two, they had not matured in Hebrews five twelve. It's possible, folks. It's hard to understand and hard to believe, but there is sometimes people get persecuted over and over again. God allows it. He allows persecution. He allows temptation to mature a Christian, but some Christians don't mature. And this is what was going on here. You know, any time that you're sitting back there and wondering why you go through more than somebody else sitting next to you maybe the reason is you're just not getting it you're not maturing you know i'm not telling you everything you go through is for that sense some people pray that on themselves because they want to grow but the point is that what they're trying to grow to they don't seem to ever be able to attain because they they never grasp what god's trying to show them so in this case this is i believe was happening to the jews So they, but persecuted, never matured. They needed to be reminded that the blood of Jesus was the only sacrifice for sins, according to Hebrews 10, 26, and that the law, and I want you to look at Hebrews, it's going to come up behind me, Hebrews 8, 6 through 13. I want to read that. But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he is a mediator of a better covenant. Now what is being said here, and we're going to read through this, but what is being said here is that, Moses said that there would be something come along, actually, better than the law. This is what this is saying. And he's telling you what it was. Made of a better covenant which was established upon better promises. For if that first covenant, the law, had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second, the coming of Jesus Christ. and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. If there's more coming. You can read it. So that he, he was simply saying that there's something coming along better, and he wrote this in the book of Hebrews to the Hebrews. He said, what you have is the best there is. Going back to something that is second best, why would you do that? Why would you go back to something that was less? And this is, this is what he was saying. And we're not sure why uh, the letters' first readers were in danger of reverting to Judaism. It may be that they were worried by the continual reproach for the, uh, of the cross, and Hebrews thirteen twelve tells this. And when they embraced Jesus as a Jewish Messiah, they put themselves outside the mainstream of Jewish tradition and of the continuing and powerful cultural influence of the temple and the Jewish sects, including the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The strong pressure to return to Jewish orthodoxy may have seemed too much for them to resist. They were apparently in danger of abandoning meetings of the Messianic Jews in Hebrews 10.25 or rejecting their Christian teachers in Hebrews 13 and 7 and of embracing strange teachings including elements of the Old Covenant dietary laws, Hebrews 13 and 9. I have a problem, a big problem, when I get somebody you're trying to talk to that goes back into the dietary laws. I know that eating bacon can cause you to have a heart attack. But you have to eat a lot of it. And if the Bible tells me all things are blessed, if you sanctify them with prayer, okay, then that tells me that I can eat what I want to eat. And if I want to eat boiled possum, I'll eat boiled possum. And it's not going to bother me a bit. You understand what I'm saying? But for somebody to come in and say, well, I don't understand. They go back to the book of Leviticus and come up with dietary laws. You see what I'm saying? And put more on themselves than what Jesus would ever put on somebody. Or try to be a Christian. Again, if a person wants to be a vegan, that's fine. I believe that you should be, every church should have one. (laughs) You're special. You're special. Because I look at her and say, that's what I need to be a vegan. And I'll never do it. But I can look at her and say, that's what I need to do. You know, we always have something to aspire to. But on the other side of it, folks, we should never, you know, for people to believe somehow that that salvation is associated with what you eat. Oh. You know, we're Pentecostal. We give up everything else. Don't make us give up our food, too. (laughs) Good grief. Good grief got to have something, you know. I got <laughs> See, everybody's agreeing with me. <laughs> oh. But uh, you know, you you're surprised at the amount of of people that actually that you you come across this. And it's it's pretty amazing. So the book of Hebrews alerts us <clears throat> Uh, alerts us not only to the, the dangers addressed but also to the fact that in the last days we can expect many temptations and i believe when you look at the book of hebrews that we can associate that with us i mean that wasn't that was written to the hebrews yes but it's for the whole church and so we can expect if they had those kind of temptations to revert back to something that was less and we are going to have the same thing that's why there's backsliders you know it's hard for me to see somebody backslide. it's terrible it really is, but on the other hand, I can't believe it's not going to happen when the Bible tells me it will. I just hate for to see people go through some of the things again that they had to, you know, because it'll be worse the next time. That's what the Bible says, and that's so you look at this and opportunities turn away from. Exclusive reliance on Jesus Christ and His cross will present themselves again and again. The fact that we see these kinds of ideas arising repeatedly is confirmation that we're still living in the last days, and this calls for increased caution on our part to avoid deception. Deception is going to be there, and we need to avoid that deception. You know, possibilities exist. I don't think that any of us really realize what can happen to us in the Holy Ghost. You know, some of the things you go through, if you can hang on to them and learn by them, then you can, you, you, can, you can surpass anything that you ever hoped for within the kingdom of God. You can be one of the greatest teachers, preachers. You can be the greatest soul winner. You can be used in the gifts of the Spirit. You know, I, I, look, at, I look at you a lot of times, and I realize that some of the areas that you've gone through and things that I've walked through with you, you know, I realize what God could do with you with your youth, with the the ability that you have and what you have what's happened to you in your life. Look what God could do with you. I know you've seen that before, we've talked about it, but just think what God can do with you. It's just a matter of embracing that fact and realizing that God can do it through me. That, that's all there is to it. All right, moving on, knowing this first. Let's look at this. Peter wrote this. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lust, and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant, Of that by the word of God. The heavens were of old, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat. The earth also, and the works that there are therein, shall be burned up. You know, I used to, when I first got in church, taught a lot of Bible studies, used that scripture a lot. And I used to teach it that that I believed that it would be a nuclear war. Because... It's a known fact that you can take a nuclear bomb and actually melt rocks with it. And elements will melt with the ferment heat. But I've since uh, thought, no, I I, I don't think it'll be that easy. I think it'll come straight from God. I really do. I think it'll be the possibility exists. You know, we can look at what man has made and realize that, yes, we have that ability to do that to ourselves. But I think it'll be much worse than what man can do to one another. I really do. Now, one of the indications of the last days is the appearance, again, of scoffers who mock the idea of the second coming. Since almost 2,000 years have passed since the beginning of the last days with their anticipation of the Lord's return, some, some may think the first century believers were wrong. But they weren't wrong. They're not wrong at all. In Scripture, the last days is a period of time following the time past. Saint Peter. Uh, actually, I have that. That's First Peter 2, verse 10. First Peter 2, verse 10. Which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which hath not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Now, I want you to look at that. It said in time past, as Peter's Peter speaking. So in Scripture, the last days is a period of time following the time past. The first coming of Jesus Christ was a premier event long anticipated by prophets in time past, inaugurated inaugurated the last days. There is no event in the future, nothing in the future, that will eclipse the significance of the appearance of the Messiah. Even His second coming is dependent upon His first coming. In a sense, the first coming of the Messiah is the hinge of time. Everything before it is time past. Everything after it is latter days. So this is how we have to look at this. Time past is everything behind. The law, all of it is time past. Now we are in the latter days. And those who scoff at the idea of the second coming follow, the Bible says, their own lust. Their strong, evil desires. They do not wish to believe in the coming of Jesus Christ because if the promise of the event was true, they must answer to Him for their self-indulgent lifestyle. People who are living terribly, sinful, what they're going to do, they don't want the Lord to come. They don't want to believe in the second coming. Somehow people have got it in their mind that if they believe something hard enough... that that, that it'll happen. So if they believe in their life that Jesus Christ will never come, somehow that's going to prevent Him from coming. You know, you see that time. It doesn't matter what we believe. The only thing we need to believe is what the Bible teaches us. If I believe in the Scripture, yes, I can see miracles happen. I can see a lot of great things happen. But I can't go outside the parameters of the Bible and believe something and change what the Bible says to be true. That just doesn't happen. These scoffers, again, on the on the basis of their mistaken notion that God has never intervened in His creation, reject the coming of Jesus Christ. In this sense, their views seem similar to the deism that flourished in England in the 17th and 18th centuries and in the United States in the late 18th century. Anybody want to tell me what deism is? Deism. you know? Well, deism in its simplest form is simply this. They believe God created, but he set natural things in order, and that he doesn't intervene after creation. That's what deism is. So, yeah, they believe in God and creation, but they believe he does not intervene in in life after creation. So after after the book of Genesis, actually the first couple, three chapters of Genesis, then God doesn't get involved anymore. That's what deism is. And there are a lot of people that hold with that. There's a lot of people that are deists that don't know they're deists, you know. They they just believe God did this and that's all He does. But but they but an exercise of their will, these or by an exercise of their will, these scoffers had forgotten. They've forgotten a couple of things, and there's some dramatic episodes of God's direct intervention in His creation. Specifically, they forget the destruction of the flood in Noah's day. So He obviously got involved there. Second, Second Peter three six tells you that. And this intervention was a direct result of nearly the entire human population of the earth at the time giving themselves over to the very kind of lifestyle advocated by these false teachers. And you can see this in Genesis 6, 5, 11 through 13, 2 Peter 2, 5, 9 and 10, and so forth. If God had intervened before to destroy those who lived in corruption, he would do so again. Why would God destroy the earth like he did and let it get by with what it's going to right now you have to understand the only thing that is holding back the earth being destroyed in the sense of being destroyed be a new heaven a new earth is the church that is here on the earth that is the only thing that is holding it back our prayers i believe is preventing the coming of the lord not ours in a sense here, but I'm talking about it as the body of Christ. And you know we're talking about a body that is worldwide. Because I know good and well that there's people that are hearing me right now that really want your family, and because we all do, want your family saved to the point that you almost want God to hold off. You want God to hold off because you just give me that extra day, and it's an extra day and an extra day so we can somehow reach them. That's what's holding him back. So, this is it. So, perilous time. Paul described the last days as perilous times, of 2 Timothy 3 1. Now, the word translated perilous, uh, it, it, you want to hear me speak Greek? You ready? Are you? Chalapoi. I'm sure that's the way it's pronounced. I'm absolutely sure because nobody else knows if I'm right or wrong, so it didn't make any difference. <laughs> and it appears only one other time in the New Testament, that particular word. To describe two men possessed with devils as fierce. The term, the term, perilous also means fierce. So when he says perilous times shall come, he's saying fierce times shall come. Now that's violent, you know, terrible. For men, he goes on, shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness. They go to church occasionally. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power. He doesn't have any deists. They don't have any power. Goes to church, but he doesn't have any power. That's how they think. But denying the power thereof. From such turn away... if you, you ever something think about what I just read to you? We don't have to, to go into deep prayer and fasting to figure if this is the last days. All we have to do is click on our computer or, or look at the paper or top of the hour news. And we see every bit of that. Everything. It's, it's been there for a while. It's getting worse. I mean, we cannot believe that God will not come soon by just looking around us and comparing that scripture. To what we see all of this is occurring now all of this is happening now and he goes on to say for of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins led away with divers lust ever learning this is a good one everling and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth you have got so many people that are so smart they can't see something that is simple the Bible says a simplicity which is in Christ. We make this harder than it needs to. What do you think? What do you think we have so many young people that are getting involved? And we, you know, I've talked about this in Halloween. So many people are getting involved in demonic activity and the supernatural on the wrong side because they think God has no power because all they have got to compare it to is what they have seen their parents do. They go to some kind of church who, you know, they, they, they want to get through the service as fast as they can and go do something else because it's dead. That's, all that, that's what they think. I want something with power. I, I don't necessarily get angry with these, these young people involved in demonism. I can understand it to some extent. That's sad for me to say that, but I can understand it. If I had gone to church when I first came in and everything was completely dead, I would have gotten involved in something else. The one thing is for sure. The church had better have some anointing. It better have some power. We need to be able to lay hands on the sick and see them recover. We need to hear the Word of God in its purest form. And we don't back down when the devil comes up against us. If you believe me, give the Lord a hand clap of praise. So we don't need we don't need to, no anecdotes here. We don't need to understand all this. All we need to understand here is that we're living in that particular time. You know, our keen keen interest uh, to connect current events with the date of the second coming has resulted in a and substantial and I can say that substantial speculation about the role of the Olivet Discourse and and it helps us in helping us determine that the time of the end. Uh, now, again, I, I, I want to say this. I, I, you know, I, I've taught this before, and I said when it comes to prophecy, you've got to be careful not be too dogmatic. And yeah, that means I'm absolutely sure this is the way something's going to be. That's what dogmatic is. So I, I'm not going to say I'm dogmatic on this, but I'm absolutely sure this is the way it is. <laughs> so <laughs> I believe the 24th chapter of the book of, of Matthew is for the Jews. I always have. And I believe it's after after the rapture. Now, I know you're going to say, you heard me read, two women will be in the field, one will be taking the other left. Two be in the bed, one will be taken, the other left. And, you know, maybe you're right and I'm wrong. And it could just very well be that these are all Jews and only half of them are going to make it after the rapture of the church. So it's just, it's just you know. But, you know, look at this. And let's, let's say I'm wrong. It's okay for me to be wrong. A close reading of the discourse will, will show that while it anticipates the second coming, it is not intended to enable the reader to set dates. You know, for example, today's text began with Jesus' words, But of that day and the hour knoweth no man, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. We've already discussed those words of Jesus that are recorded in Mark thirteen thirty two, where we also discovered that the Son of God did not know the day or the hour, and that these words refer not just to the 24-hour day or a 60-minute hour. The point is simply that no human knows when the end will come. Now, this is borne out in Jesus' reference to the destruction that came in Noah's day. This destruction came during the time when people were eating, drinking, marrying, and given in marriage. There's no sin in any of those things. The point is simply that in the days of Noah, life went on as usual. And that's the way it's going to be at the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's going to be on the time that you think not the Son of Man cometh. So it's going to be a day like any other day. You know we're just going to be doing the same thing. These people knew not. Jesus' point here, he pointed out, these people knew not till the flood came and took them all away. So shall also the coming of the Son of Man be, speaking of the flood and judgment. You know when it began to rain, I'm sure they wondered what it was since they never saw rain before. But they didn't know that rain was going to destroy the world. So there again, we see that, you know, it's just a day like any other day. So many individuals, and I know I've, I've brought this up several times, but I didn't know one little fact here. And many individuals remember that book that titled The 88 Reasons, The Rapture Will Be in 1988. Now what he did was he got into the 24th chapter of Matthew, and began to look into it. He went into Revelation. He went into Daniel. He began to mine all of these things to come up with a date that the church would be raptured. And he said that it was going to happen, and I don't have a clue. I read the book, but I didn't agree with it, so I don't remember it. That during September 11th through 13th, 1988, that the rapture was going to happen. And it's reported that this booklet that he sold, hundreds of thousands of copies. All right, He sold that many. When the prediction failed... The author came out with another booklet explaining that the rapture would take place in 1989. It didn't sell so good. And he did. He came up with another booklet there that said it was going to be in you know, 1989, trying to redeem himself. Regardless, we don't know the day or the hour, but we do know that he's coming and coming soon. Questions or comments? Anybody? Go ahead. Jehovah Witnesses. She might be. Hmm? So that probably will be actually a lot much, because it says I just of love, just and What's so that? On? So 144,000 is what you're talking about in the book of Revelation. Um, anybody else? Go ahead, sis. Jews, that's right. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, that's a lot of the reason too. When you go. That's the reason the the Jews knew that Messiah was God incarnate. They knew that. And they couldn't accept that Jesus was that—that that was God incarnate. So, yeah, yeah. Anybody else? Questions, comments? Want to add to anything? As long as you do add to the scripture, we're all right. All right. Stand with me. Nobody asked questions. One or two things. Either they're hungry, they want to get out of here, or right, I did such a wonderful job but they got everything. Okay, so. We don't know which it is, though, do we? <laughs> All right, let's remember again, 6 o'clock tonight, again, they're the, uh, having to the play. And uh, we've got something here. we got to read. All oh, the kids need to be here at 5 p.m. if they're in the drama. So be sure that uh, the kids are here at 5 p.m. And, um, again, let's come and enjoy. It'll be. It'll always be good. Uh, when you've got little kids in Christmas, that's the one thing that makes it all worthwhile. You know, it really does. Had a be, a meeting, um, so I all right, Thursday night at Cracker Barrel is going to be a dinner instead of the breakfast. So, go see uh, Sister Mona Any questions on that? You've been to Hawaii? See her. Is that what that is? Oh, it's not. I thought Charles had sent you to Hawaii, maybe. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I got that. All right. Well, again, let's come and enjoy. Let's raise our hands to the Lord and let's thank Him. God, we thank you for your blessings, your goodness, your mercy. We pray that you keep your hand upon each and every one, Jesus, as they travel. Lord, bless them. Keep your hand of safety and protection upon them until they come back tonight. God, I ask now in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord, bless you. You're dismissed.